0: Sharper Iron is underwritten by the Lutheran Church Extension Fund, where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Tuesday, October 15th, we are studying Amos 1, verses 3 through 5. The shepherd from Tekoa has heard the Lord roar from Zion, but that roar is not only heard in Zion. In fact, it is neither Judah nor Israel to whom the Lord first speaks here in the book of Amos. Instead, the Lord begins by speaking against their neighbors, the pagan nations who neither knew nor feared him. Yet that did not exempt them from his rule and judgment, for he is the only God. And so the Lord begins with the people of Damascus, the city that is the capital of Aram. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Gavin Mize. Pastor Mize serves at Augustana Evangelical Lutheran Church in Hickory, North Carolina. Pastor Mize, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Thank you, Pastor Apple. It's uh, always good to be here.
0: Pastor Mize, we got started yesterday with the book of Amos, the first two verses, the, the superscription, and then verse 2, the... the uh, the summary of the book of Amos, and so we we did some background work yesterday. We talked about the the background. We're in the time of the divided kingdom, where Israel in the north has the two idols set up in Bethel and Dan, and you've got Judah in the south still worshiping uh, the Lord there in Jerusalem, where the place that He's put His name is. And Amos is a prophet uh, called by the Lord. He's from the southern kingdom, from Judah, but he's sent to Israel the northern kingdom with this roar of the lord the lion roars from zion that's a, a key theme for the book of amos and now as amos begins to write here in verses 3 through 5 we're going to see that he he doesn't actually address israel Right away starts to address some of the neighbors. So as we start to get into the the text here, Pastor Mize, go ahead and and add or or repeat any of that context that's going to help us this morning, and and also start to introduce us to this idea that the Lord doesn't always just speak to His own people, Israel and Judah, but He also addresses the nations around them.
1: Absolutely, I think that a really good starting point for us is kind of to, not back up, but uh, widen the scope a little bit because as you have guests going through uh, the book of Amos, you will really zero in and then you need to broaden the scope and then uh, really zoom it back in like a, like a laser into the text. So to broaden it a little bit, not as far out as 1-1, uh, one, one, but to back it up, simply to the judgment of Israel's neighbors or Israel's neighbors, um, it's going to go. We're going to see that theme throughout the entire first chapter. Now, the pericope here that that I have looked at and researched uh, is particularly to Damascus, and we'll see in four um, the sending of, of fire upon the house of. Hazel, we'll just use Hazel for the uh, for the uh, ease of speech. Uh, but when we look at at that, at the entire uh, scope of it, we constantly see a few words that that pop up. And hopefully, uh, as as future guests come on, they will it will be a constant theme that will pop up. I I don't see how it couldn't be. Uh, and we'll get to that soon, but that's why I kind of want to broaden the the scope a little bit, take a look at the entire first chapter like we just did, and then uh, close the lens back on on uh, my set here. Uh, at at in college, in particular, at Mech they they really had us do that. That you know, context was the entire scriptures. And then you would zoom it, zoom it in, or uh, take a particular text and then zoom it out, and then go back in. And I found that that's helpful, um, in particular as we do the the entire chapter. Um, and of course, anyone who sits down with the Book of Amos, unless you're Professor Lessing, uh, <laughs> probably needs to do a little refresher on the entire book. Uh, and then go and then narrow it into chapter and then into pericope. And uh, that, that's what I've tried to do here. Uh, okay. And again, sure. you'll see that you'll see a few words pop up. So I, w- I want to kind of set the tone for those words to pop up.
0: Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Yeah. It, it's always a good idea to read the text in its context to know what you're looking at and and where it occurs in the biblical narrative so that you can understand it better so what i'll do pastor Mize, is i'll go ahead and read these three verses that we have before us and then as, as a way of introduction if you can help us point out those parts that we're going to see as key features not just in this oracle against damascus but as you said, in the coming judgments that are going to be against a variety right. of nations around Israel. So let me go ahead and read the text for us this morning. Absolutely. This is Amos chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. So I will send a fire upon the house of Haziel, And it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon. And him who holds the scepter from Beth Eden and the people of Syria shall go into exile to Kir, says the Lord. Those are the three verses that we have before us today from Amos chapter 1, this judgment against Damascus. And so, Pastor Mize, you have rightly pointed out for us that this is the first in a series that will go through chapter 1 and chapter 2, judgments against the nations around Israel, and as we're going to see in chapter 2, then coming in with the bullseye upon Israel at the end. But, but for right now, we're just getting started in that. And, and so, Go ahead and point out for us some of the features that we see in this text that are going to be common throughout these various judgments in Chapters 1 and 2.
1: Recently, I have been... uh, Well, I've been trying to get back into some of the classical books uh, and try to look at some of the original languages of those classical books, at least as much as possible. Um, For example, about... Six months ago, I finished reading um, uh, Dante's Inferno, the first part of the Divine Comedy, and uh, my classical Latin is not—or not, excuse me—not Latin. Italian is is uh, existent um, However, I, I I I've studied enough to. So where is I can, mine. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not really something that uh, that they threw in with theological languages as a major, but. Uh, uh, I'm, I, I've worked with languages enough to know where to find the answers so uh, as I'm looking through some of these through some of the, the Italian uh, using heavily the English <laughs> uh, I was able to take a look at some of, the, some of the words and also how it pointed back from Dante to Virgil uh, and also from, from Virgil some of the, uh, his, his Latin texts And also back to some of the Greek uh, classicists as as well and one of the things that I found was uh, while looking at at our text here before us is a common thread in the midst of them that is used as a turn of phrase now I could not find the etymology of it as far as it goes uh, back to the Vulgata but not necessarily to, to the Hebrew uh, it, it's this, the term, uh, for, and it's this—the term for—and I'll just—I'll just look at the uh, tr- the Latin translation here. It's um, uh, uh, three times, and then four times, uh, and then here in the Hebrew we have for three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, and that just seems like a very strange type of language for us to speak a a strange way for us to speak it's like okay well if if, if he's already uh punished the transgressions or or has three transgressions uh what's what's a fourth well that's kind of like a man coming to christ and saying how many times must i forgive my brother up to seven and jesus says no um 70 times seven well jesus is not actually saying do the math and then once he sins once more after that, then don't forgive him. The, the, the idea is that it, it's, it's a number of uh, eternity. There's not a time when you should not forgive your brother. It's a number that is meant to be unfathomable. And uh, in the third transgression, moving, or the thrice transgression, moving to the fourth transgression, uh, w- what that is in... Um, uh, Virgil's text uh, is meant to be like that is in the in, in New Testament. It is forever. It is a number in which cannot be ceased, cannot stop. Um, and then also there's the idea that there are three transgressions, and the three transgressions are uh, not only constant, but they are repetitive for each and every person that Amos speaks to, or each, uh, excuse me, group of people that Amos speaks to. And you'll see that time after time after time. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the, uh, the punishment. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions uh, of Gaza uh, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Thus says the Lord, and for three transgressions of Tyre, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. And uh, in other words, for these transgressions and for all the transgressions, you never ceased your transgressions against me. Thus, I will not cease my punishment upon you. Uh, and there's that, the, the sense of repentance that is not there. The transgressions are constant. Jesus, is, or, or Jesus God is not speaking through Amos saying, um, okay, I've given you three strikes, but boy, that fourth one really upset me. You know what I mean? So we're going to see that time for time for time, and God's not giving us a number to uh, live up to, but rather one that is insurmountable without repentance, which we'll see mm-hmm. is not there.
0: Right yeah, the the three and then four transgressions, which is a, as you pointed out, a repeated uh, repeated item here in these these various judgments against the different nations is is not so much about inviting us to keep count, but it is, is rather a device that that Amos employs here to, to say exactly, I think what what you were saying these these transgressions are constant. They're repetitive. You've not repented of them, and so because of that, the Lord's judgment is coming upon you. He's not going to revoke it. It's not so much about keeping count, um, you know. And there's others examples of this in the in the scriptures. You pointed out, for example, Jesus in the New Testament when he talks about the, how many times we are to forgive a brother. Another example in the Old Testament would be something to the effect of, um, and you see this sort of like step by step. Thing that happens. So, uh, for example, in uh, I think it's in First Samuel. After not long after David kills Goliath, Saul hears some of the the women singing that that Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed tens of thousands. So you see, you see that that escalation that's there meant to to emphasize rather than to invite you to to count per se. And so that that feature of these judgments here for three transgressions and for four. It's not so much about counting them as it is about their unrepentant, continual nature of these of these transgressions. Uh, another one that, that's a similarity among all these judgments that we're going to encounter in Amos 1 and 2, and, and it, it's so simple that maybe we skip over it, but I don't want to, is those those very first words in verse 3. Thus says the Lord. When Amos preaches... This isn't just the preaching of a man; this is the Lord's word. How how is that important, Pastor Mize? Uh,
1: well, I think it would be shorter to, to just <laughs> to give all the ways that that it's it's not important, which would be none. Um, <laughs> in, in other words, if if we can't say that in our own preaching, um, certainly uh, we are not speaking the words of God. Now, when so thus, when Amos says it. Thus says the Lord God, and when we say, Amen, um, th- the word of God is being spoken. Thus, whatever comes after that, that are the Lord's words, uh, they, are, they are not spoken merely from Amos. They are spoken through Amos to the people in whom he's addressing, just like the pastor who preaches the sermon uh, each and every Sunday. Uh, we should be able to say, Thus says the Lord at the end of our sermons, and if we can't, um, then we have not rightly uh, exegeted the, the text. But, uh, but more, more importantly, uh, in the overall view of, of Amos, is that thus says the Lord, and then it becomes, is prophetic. Without thus says the Lord, a prophet cannot be a prophet. He's just a guy rambling uh, incoherent things. Whereas thus says the Lord... Um, the transgressions of Damascus and the punishment that's coming has uh, temporal and eternal consequences for the people of Damascus. Um, and so that becomes even more important to them. Uh, us on this side of the text can look at it and say, okay, well, you know, the, the, these words are prophetic, and they certainly are, but they're not directed to us per, per se, um, as Amos is speaking to those of Damascus, you know that they, they, when they heard this, they should have been uh, trembling in their boots, knowing that the punishment of the Lord was was coming because the prophet said so, and he only speaks. Uh, the prophet can only speak of his, the words of his master.
0: Right. So the, the fact that. Amos is speaking the word of the Lord is, I mean, is of utmost importance. If he's not, then the people of Damascus could outright ignore him. But if he truly is, as he is, then there's absolutely no excuse to ignore the prophet Amos. You can't, for example, and, and we'll see this come up later in the book of Amos in chapter 7, it, it would not be right for, for someone there in Israel to just dismiss Amos as Oh, he's just that shepherd from the South. Why should we listen to him? It, he's been given this word from the Lord. And so regardless of, of who the man that the Lord chooses to use, that, that's not the point. The point is
1: that, that that also sounds eerily like, uh, what was said about Jesus. hmm. Can anything good come
0: from Nazareth?
1: um, Yeah. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Uh. I was was trying, in the middle of that, I was trying to think of the text, uh, the number, text number. But, uh, yeah, can anything good come from from Nazareth? (laughs) Well, the word of the Lord can uh, incarnate and uh, and tabernacling among you. Not only can something good come, but it's the word of God, and he brings uh, not peace but the sword, as well as uh, salvation to those who repent. And so we're seeing this, it's almost a foreshadowing, uh, or a typology of, of, of Christ, um, who comes to judge both the living and the dead.
0: Yeah, yeah, mo- most certainly. I mean, every, every time we encounter the prophets, in the prophets, the word of the Lord, we should be thinking forward to the final prophet, who is Christ. Exactly. Um, think about what the Lord says in Deuteronomy 18, or I guess it's, it's Moses speaking, that, that the Lord's going to send a prophet like me to whom the people must listen. And so you get, you've got this series of prophets throughout the Old Testament to whom the people must listen because they, they speak the word of the Lord as Amos does. But finally, that, that text from Deuteronomy 18 and, and these texts from Amos chapter 1, thus says the Lord, is fulfilled in the word that is made flesh, who, who is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, exactly. We, we definitely need to see in the preaching of Amos a foreshadow, a type of, of Christ as the final prophet, the word of God made flesh.
1: Uh, and also, any time you see, thus says the word uh, of the Lord, uh, that you know that is Christ. Um, in in the, in the in the very words that that God spoke when, when He created uh, the heavens and the earth, the word that He spoke was was Jesus. Um, and uh, likewise, any time you see that, thus says the Lord, uh, what He wh- who He is speaking is John one one. Uh, when the word became flesh, and that is Christ. That also means, um, in, in the sense of the law and the gospel. Now, I'll, I'll give you an example, an, an illustration. Uh, in there's a basilica in Washington D.C., and it's, it's a Roman Catholic basilica. And I'm not mentioning necessarily the, the theology here, but it, it, if you look at the altar there is a statue of Mary. And the statue of Mary, um, you know, I'm, I'm no iconoclast, but the statue of Mary where Jesus is supposed to be behind the altar, there's a problem. Um, and the reason it's a problem is because that's where everybody focuses. But if you just, and, and Mary's arms are out and her eyes are up looking at the ceiling, and then when you look up at the ceiling, there's a very angry Jesus bearing down on all the people. And so, everyone, in other words, the, the, the theological understanding there is that you look at this, this piece of art, and you're asking Mary, and Mary's looking at Jesus uh, asking him to not be so angry with the people. She's interceding uh, for the people to, Jesus, to an angry Jesus. Now, I bring that up because the idea of an angry Jesus, that is not correct theology, of course, um, but in, uh, the idea of an angry Jesus is something that's lost on many Uh, American theologians today just completely uh, gone because they don't they don't move t-shirts and they don't move bracelets and they don't move merchandise or swag or whatever the cool theologians are calling it now Um, and the reason it it, it doesn't is because no one wants an angry Jesus Uh, they like they don't mind an angry God in the ambiguous sense but they don't want an angry Jesus well you know, th- th- whenever you wear a WWJD bracelet uh, and you ask, "What would Jesus do?" You know, we've all seen the the, the joke. Uh, well, you have to also accept that flipping over tables and whooping people out of the temple is a plausible uh, uh, is in the realm of possibilities. Uh, well, likewise, when the when the lo- word of God is spoken. It's Christ is the law and is the fulfillment of a law uh, and the prophets as well. So when the word of God is spoken, it is Christ, but it doesn't, necess- it doesn't necessarily mean that it comes merely to, to heal. It doesn't mean that it comes merely to give peace, but also uh, to to cut. You know, it's a, it's a it's a double-edged sword the word of God is, uh, and it cuts in and out. And in that sense, just because something says the word of the Lord, it is Christ, but it doesn't mean that it's not bringing destruction. I,
0: that, I think that's a great point, and I think it, it gets to something that, that you and I were visiting with or visiting about just a little bit before before we came on air here, about how this text is going to preach Christ to us. Because to just to use the turn of phrase that that you did there. When you read Amos one verses three through five, I mean, this sure sounds like an angry Jesus to me. So, mm-hmm. I mean, <laughs> I know we're still on the first, we got about three minutes here before the before the break, and I know we talked about doing this maybe towards the end, but but perhaps it's not bad to just talk about it here a little bit too. I mean, how do we how do we hear this as as Christians today? Oh. And I think you've started to give the answer that that Christ as the Word speaks both law and gospel. But I mean, how how do we hear this as, as Christians today, knowing that that yes Jesus is is angry and he's rightly wrathful, but he's also the one who who died and rose. I mean, help help us out there, Pastor Mize.
1: As we look before, we'll get to the remnant uh, soon, which also applies to the to the gospel and and the risen Lord. Though here I think a, a better understanding, theologically, would be it's a, it's a baptismal reality. The same Jesus who, uh, uh, who cast the rain upon the wicked land also used the rain both to destroy and to float the ark of Noah. Um, thus eight and all were saved, and so we have to look at it in, in that way. The wrath of God that comes on the wickedness also uh, destroys the wickedness in us and saves us uh, from the, with the same uh, blood of Jesus Christ uh, who 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 kills that wickedness and by killing that wickedness uh, saves us who, who we who we uh, who we are in our repentance and in, in our forgiveness of Christ. So it's it's really a flood reality and, of course, baptismal reality, reality the way we look at First Peter, that uh, in, the, in the days of Noah, the rains came, and the entire world was destroyed, and yet by the same means uh, that destroyed the, the earth, destroyed the wickedness, also saved those who were in the ark. Likewise, in baptism, we are drowned, and the old Adam is left in the bottom of the font, we die, and the new Adam is brought up by the new Adam, who is Jesus Christ Himself. So the same Jesus that is the wrathful is not a different Jesus when He's the uh, uh, the 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 Salvator. Um, he it's not a different Jesus. Not a it's not a moody Jesus. It's just it it is simply the, the same Christ who acts upon wickedness in the same way.
0: And, and then to save us from our own wickedness, right? Exactly. I mean, so exactly. so the, the transgressions of Damascus, yeah, yes, right? We need to understand this in its historical context and what the transgressions of Damascus were. But at the same time, we also need to be able to hear our own transgressions as those that need to have the wrath of God brought down upon them and then see that wrath of God come down upon Jesus in our place. Now we are baptized into him. And so saved through that, that same flood that that washes away our wickedness now, now floats us in the ark of the church un, unto eternal life. And, and we're going to have to pick that image up on the other side of the break. You're listening to sharper iron here on worldwide KFU. we're going to take that short break right now, but we'll be right back. Please stick around. Welcome back to Sharper Iron on this Tuesday, October 15th. We are looking at Amos chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, the Judgment Against Damascus that the prophet records here. And we're looking at it with Pastor Gavin Mize of Augustana Evangelical Lutheran Church in Hickory, North Carolina. Pastor Mize, before the break, we we'd been looking at some of these similarities that are going to occur over and over in Amos chapters 1 and 2 with these judgment against Israel's neighbors. And so we we talked at length about, thus says the Lord, that when Amos comes along preaching, he's not just speaking whatever happens to be on his mind. He's actually preaching what the Lord says, which is our, our connection to, to Christ here, that, that he is the word of the Lord now made flesh. We've talked about the, the three transgressions and four, that these transgressions that we're going to see in chapters one and two are not just sort of one-time slip-ups, but these are continued unrepentant transgressions that the Lord rightly will pour his judgment upon. Another similarity between these various judgments here in chapters one and two, although it's different each time, this might be what you call one of the propers of, of these sections is that you've got three transgressions of Damascus or Gaza or Tyre or Edom, et cetera. So today's text is concerning Damascus and Damascus is the capital city of one of Israel's neighbors that, neighbor of Israel actually goes by two different names in the scriptures. One is Aram and the other is Syria. And in fact, Aram or Syria biblically is very close to where modern day Syria is still today. So Amos first preaches to Damascus, the capital of Aram, Syria, biblically. We get some other place names here and other places names of kings here, Haziel, Ben-Hadad. Pastor Mize, help us dig in to some of these context matters, geography, history, etc., that's going to help us understand Amos 1, 3 through 3-5 a little better.
1: Well, first, uh, I want to take a look here um, in Damascus, um, Gilead, and the house of Haziel, Uh, and also uh, Ben-Hadad. But before I do that, I I want to bring back a word that you mentioned before uh, that I forgot to mention, and that's the oracles. Um, And the oracles there are, um, are particularly in the first two chapters, and uh, they escalate. They uh, build upon each other. And so, again, that gives the reality of 3, and 4, that it's just continuous escalation and building up. But I didn't use the word oracles, um, and I think that that's very important in the prophetic sense, especially when looking at uh, Damascus, uh, Gilead, and, uh, and Hazel, and uh, Ben-Hadad. Uh, first, let's take a look um, at Damascus I me to take a look here at my notes uh, the bar of Damascus um, is that is that where you are
0: sure and anything I mean anything here yeah there, there are several things that are are just perhaps foreign to our American context so so certainly the the gate bar of Damascus um, what what's a gate bar and and why is it significant that the Lord says he's going to break it
1: the gates in particular are um, well excuse me the bar in particular is that which keeps the uh gate well closed and without us romanticizing and and or making it more you know expository uh, looking at the historical understanding and context of it um, the bar of Damascus would be the strength of of Damascus uh, but the Historical understanding of it, it would be the the, re, the uh, reinforcement or the galvanizing of the wall, the gate uh, is a type of speech of the galvanizing of their um, strength. So uh, the bar of Damascus is the gates or the uh, traverse bar running from wall to wall. Um, in other words, their strength. And and what, right. What, so, is, is it, do you want to? Uh, well
0: just to i mean I, I think when the lord says he's going to break the gate bar of damascus right. this is this is showing that you know a, a the city gate that would have been the place where an an enemy army would attack because that's going to be the most vulnerable and you're going to strengthen it as as the city however best you can and the gate bar would have been a big part of that you would have had two sockets of some kind on the posts that would have had nice strong foundations and you'd have a, a strong metal bar going across that. And so to break the gate bar basically now is going to allow the enemy army to rush into the city and to destroy it. And and it's going to only happen here by divine power. Um, you know, a, a very striking image scripturally when it comes to breaking gate bars is, is going back to the book of Judges, and Samson does this on his own. Of course, by divine strength right but the fact that a man would do that shows that it has to be divine strength and so here you that judgment that's coming against damascus this is this is the lord's wrath being poured out upon damascus breaking the gate bar right uh, flowing into the city attacking it and and just running in and overtaking it
1: one one very and uh, trying to when i was descri- uh, describing the 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 gate bar, the actual bar, and uh, I'm glad that you picked up on the breaking of the gate bar um, because there's one theological point uh, that, I, that I did think about and I've wanted to bring it out, although it's not in, in my notes per se. And it's, Are you much of a uh, Lord of the Rings fan?
0: I am. I am. Great books am and not. good movies. Oh, I am not. <laughs> uh, okay. we, can, we can still be <laughs> friends. I've
1: se- I, I, I have read enough and seen enough to know that they never uh, go into the battle of a castle from the back, right? right. Uh, I'm more of a Princess Bride fan, you know, have fun storming the castle, you know, I'm more of that kind of guy. <laughs> um, uh, but but even then, you know, they, they they go to the gate. You know, that, that like you said, it's the most, uh, uh, I don't want to say weak, but the weakest uh, link in the whole wall, the old chain. No one's going to attack the side unless... The, the gate's already taken. Um, no one's going to go for the strongest part. They're going to go for the weakest part. And what's very interesting is it when he talks about God breaking the bar of Damascus and that wrath, that anger that that, that you brought up, um, that is, is very, very uh, Good Friday. Um, and the breaking of, of that, uh, breaking of that gate where uh, God now has access to the, to the people, and they, are, they should be afraid, and the wrath is going to come out. On Good Friday, when Christ dies and the wrath is poured onto his son, then the temple curtain is broken and torn from the top to the bottom. And now it's not that the people have access to God, but or sorry, it's not that God has access to the people, but that people have access to God. Um, and so, that and, and while it was frightening, uh, so they would learn uh, three days later what that access means, and that access is through Christ, uh, who who has died and, and and resurrected. I know we want to get to the historical context, but uh, I, I had to I had to point that out there. Uh, sure. Well, and, it, it, go ahead. Well, I
0: was and I, I think that 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 move that you made there is is going to help us as we think about how how do we preach Christ from this text it is going to be it's going to be seen when we recognize that all of the judgment that falls upon Damascus and the following nations in Amos 1 and 2 finally God's solution for it is to is to pour it out upon his son and, and I, so I think it's a, I think it's a good a good move that you made, um, but but you're right. I mean, we we should talk more about some historical context. So again, Damascus is the, the capital city of, of Aram slash Syria, and and Aram or or Syria is one of Israel's neighbors, and and is one that. Israel had a tenuous relationship with. King David conquered them for a while during his reign. They gained some independence under King Solomon, and then they became a sometimes enemy of Israel and sometimes friend of Israel, and and sometimes a a friend or an enemy of Judah, the southern kingdom, too. And, And the and the reason that that, that fact is that there is sometimes enemy of Israel helps us to understand a little bit about Gilead. Gilead is the, the east side of the Jordan, one of the first parts of, of the conquering of the promised land when, when Moses brings the people in and then Joshua finishes the, the job on the other side. So Gilead would have been the first area that you would have attacked many times if you were going to attack Israel or Judah. And so what happens with Damascus, with Aram in, in Syria, is that the, the transgression that the Lord lists here is that they threshed Gilead with threshing sledges of iron. And, and I don't know if you, if you did any, any research on, on that, Pastor Mize, as to, to what that might have looked like. Um, if not, I've got a couple thoughts on, on why this is a particularly terrible, uh, terrible thing that, that Damascus did to them. Did you look at I the did, threshing? I did, at
1: I all? did not. No, I, well, I, I just uh, assumed it from the context from the New Testament. So sure. So I couldn't well, do it justice the way that you're about to. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that, you, have, you have a bit of. What? Well, so so. But what I've what I've read concerning you know threshing grain. Is, is you're separating the kernel that you want from all the chaff. That's what threshing grain is. And there's a variety of ways to do that. One of the ways that, that you could do that is, is with some sort of uh, like a sled with, with iron knives essentially on it. And you would run that over the grain, whether you, you, know, you pulled it with animals or just did it by hand, you'd run that over the grain in order to separate the kernel that you wanted from, from everything else, the husk and the chaff. And so the picture here, and, and it could be quite literal, is that the people of Aram took these threshing sledges and literally ran them over prisoners of war as if they were grain, these, these iron knives digging into the flesh of their backs. And, and so you, you you see here um, a, a total disregard then for, for human life, not recognizing that the Lord made man in his image. And it is this continual disregard for human life that is the transgression that the Lord points out against Damascus and, and for which he is going to hold them accountable and, and not revoke his His punishment.
1: Or, uh, 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 another way of looking at it, I should say, not or, uh, another way of looking at it is that he has regard for human life. Uh, it's just that, what we've done with it is not exactly uh uh honoring it you know we, we the the wages of sin of course, is death, and then that points again to 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 christ um yet that that threshing that you die i' i have never heard of that i am I'm glad uh that, that, that you said i've never heard of it that way before um it's quite macabre and uh and and plays into my wheelhouse uh i i I like that uh, i like that a lot uh because if if the if the wrath of god is so severe then it 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 shines the gospel of christ so much brighter and i love learning things like that Um, sure
0: well and and that's what i mean this is what the people of Damascus did to the people of Gilead in, in their conquest of them. It wasn't just that they, they oh, came in Oh, I'm conquered
1: sorry. I completely them, right? no, that's okay.
0: No, no, yeah. That, that's okay. I, I wanted to make sure we were on the same page. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is what the people of Damascus were doing to their prisoners of war, uh, particularly in Gilead. And so it becomes a, it becomes a Fifth Commandment issue, to, to put it in terms of the Catechism, that this is a, a complete disregard for the the life that God has given to my neighbor. And so, for that reason, I mean, this is the the sin, the transgression that the Lord is going to point out against Damascus is this, I mean, you might even call it a a crime against humanity. this is this is something that anybody should know is not what you do. You just don't treat your fellow human being like that. And yet Damascus did. and so they they received the lord's the Lord's judgment. Are we on the same page now, Pastor My?
1: Anyone should know, but clearly I did not. <laughs> yes, we are. We are.
0: Okay. Yeah, very good. Yeah. So so then that that you know, setting that up then, that, that Damascus has literally threshed these prisoners of war in Gilead, earns them from the Lord another common feature within these judgments. The in verse four we read, the Lord says, I will send a fire. And that term fire the sending of fire is a common thread in each of the judgments against Israel's neighbors, against Judah, and it, it it's conspicuously missing in later in chapter two in the judgment against Israel. It doesn't show up later, until later in the book of Exodus. But this, this fire that the Lord sends against Damascus here and then against the other nations later. Pastor Mize, why fire?
1: I wrote down here in my notes uh, that there, there's two understandings of it there's there's one of course that's the material fire um, and that that is that the cities would literally be burned uh, with fire uh, and also and we, we can see that as obvious as it moves towards uh, burning the palaces of uh, bin haddad uh, but also the uh, the symbolism if you if you will uh, of the of the intensity of, of, of the war um, and I, I mentioned here in the ancient proverb uh, a fire has gone out of uh, Hishbon uh, a flame from the city of Sahon uh, it, it consumes uh, Moab and the lords uh, in the high places of, of Aaron in Numbers 21 I just put that in there um, and uh, moreover the understanding of the burning hot anger of God uh, further uh, un- understanding that, that the wrath is not a it's not a slap on the wrist it's, a, it's historically uh, happened the, 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 this is going to be your, your wages for uh, your, your actions as, as you uh, rightly pointed out uh, the, the fifth, fifth commandment issue of uh, threshing your neighbor, uh, it, in that we find that God's ho- anger burns hot, and so we under we understand that God's uh, again I'm going to go back to American theologians who t- seem to uh, put a bit of a damper on the wrath of God, as if His Anger is something that's set apart because we we really only understand anger according to how we get angry, and so when we get angry with our spouse or our children or our friends, uh, there there is a lot of selfishness in that anger. But when when God is angry, uh, He is angry with sin. He is angry with uh, with the very thing that He hates, and that's that sin. So there's no selfishness in that in that anger which makes it even hotter because he himself is not sinning whereas when we get angry we know that there is some selfishness in that anger uh, but his anger is completely selfless um, even to the point of the, the anger the, the anger and wrath and the fire that that God the Father poured out on his son was selfless and the sacrifice of his son was also selfless. He who knew no sin became sin for us. And uh, again, I have a hard time, and this is, I guess, a good thing, um, reading even uh, any text without seeing Christ in it. So in that sense, uh, burning the the red-hot anger of burning that he, uh, in the symbolism of that uh, in that text, and also the, uh, of course,
0: No, I, and I think I think that's a very helpful way of, of talking about this fire. Is that you know certainly there's a, a very literal aspect to it, and and when you think about you know we were talking about ancient warfare a little bit earlier, you would have attacked the gate right as as the weakest point in the wall. Uh, fire would have been a very common technique in attacking a walled city. If you could burn the timbers of of buildings, that would have weakened it greatly. And so you you know flaming arrows and things like that. Fire is is certainly a an a weapon of ancient warfare, still today, in, in fact. But, but to connect it theologically, too, to the Lord's burning hot anger, I think is, is exactly right. And we see that burning hot anger throughout the scriptures. A, a good example would be Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. But then to, to finally recognize, as we pointed out before, that that, that burning hot anger ultimately comes down on, on Christ. He talks about that fire in Luke 12 that he wishes were kindled. And ultimately, it, it's kindled upon him, in in the place of of sinners, and, and that's uh, yeah, you're exactly right. You know how, how do we how do we see Christ in the Old Testament? Because we know He's there, right? Even in texts like this, I, I think that's a, a good connection to make. Um, we, we've got six minutes left here, here, Pastor Mize, and just to, to for the sake of completeness, to to make sure we we cover a few mm-hmm. more historical items. You know, you've got Hazael and Ben-Hadad. These are examples of of kings of Aram and Syria who would have reigned in Damascus. Um, one of the the tricky things in the Old Testament is there's more than one king of Syria that's named Ben-Hadad. So if you're you're reading in Second Kings through about chapters 6 through 14 or so, you're going to encounter more than one Ben-Hadad. H- Hazael actually kills one of them and, and becomes king in his place. And then he has a son named Ben-Hadad. So Ben-Hadad could be a, a I read something and it makes sense to me that it could be similar to how the Egyptian kings were called Pharaoh, regardless of what their personal name was, oh. Ben-Hadad could, could function that way for the people of, of Aram. And, and then, you know, you get these other place names in verse 5, the Valley of Avon, and then Beth Eden. These these would have been the, the two extremes of the land of Aram from west to east. And so the idea here is that the Lord is going to bring his burning hot anger, his fire, not just against the city of Damascus, but really the whole people of Aram as they're going to be carried off into exile to the to the city of Kir. And so that that kinda hopefully helps round out a few of those loose ends historically and contextually that's gonna help us get our minds around these these verses in Amos chapter one here. Pastor Myers, we got about four and a half minutes left and, and I'd like to give you that time to to wrap up anything and again, especially to help us look at this text in light of Christ. And I know you mentioned it earlier, but I didn't I don't think you got a chance to really talk about it too much. That the theme of of the remnant is something that's going to help us here in Amos chapter 1. So with, with those four minutes or so, Pastor Miles, help us draw everything together this morning in Christ.
1: I do, I believe that there, that there is a strong link between the remnant and the lost sheep of the house of Israel, um, and, and, and also in the, the two commissions, and people uh, oftentimes forget that there are two commissions, uh, but in order for there to be a great one, there has to be a first one. And uh, the first one was to go, was to, when he sent out uh, his disciples to the Jews alone, and not to the Gentiles. And he literally says, it, not the ethne, do not go to the Gentiles. And then, later on in, in Matthew, the last bit of Matthew, um, he, sa- he gives the Great Commission, where he then uses the exact same word when he says, Go into all, and for some reason we translate it uh, nations, and I don't get it because it connects to, to the first commission. Uh, go into all the Gentiles, and right there you have uh, your, your remnant. Uh, you have the lost sheep of the house of, of Israel, and you have uh, the remnant of, of the Gentile uh, who are not connected via circumcision, uh, but rather... Later on, we would understand that we that that they are the house of God who are not circumcised, um, nor who have who are not circumcised in their genitalia, but uh, in their in their hearts through baptism, and in in that we can see that, that the wrath is poured out historically, and, and that even in that remnant who 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 uh, came through the wrath of of God. Uh, in a very sacrificial sense, and by that I mean the sacrificial system, uh, as, as the remnant would be let out. So, likewise, uh, we, the remnant who, who were outside of grace uh, by our sinfulness, have been brought in, and uh, Christians remain to this day uh, the remnant who uh, of society uh, who may not get the spotlight. Uh, in in so far as uh, the world sees but in the eyes of uh, of God who looks through the eyes of his crucified son and sees um, us for who Christ sees us as and that is the blood bought children of God in that we are the remnant being brought into the heavenly kingdom where we are no longer the remnant but all the company of heaven uh, with angels and archangels as well, as I've been reading the uh, Dante's Inferno, boy, you can you – can re- and I'm going to recommend this because there, there's a project coming out uh, from Reverend Rancor, uh, that, that publishing, that's really going to look at this. And it's there's the wrath, but in seeing the wrath and the different circles of hell in Dante, you can really see – uh, the remnant becomes fewer and fewer and fewer until there's none. Uh, and when you see the wrath, the true wrath, and the majority of people who, who receive the wrath in our text, so is the great joy of those who were uh, spared. And likewise, we Christians should rejoice that our sinfulness has been destroyed and uh, Christ Rains for us, and we'll come again to do that for thing, judging the living and the dead.
0: Pastor Gavin Mize is the pastor at Augustana Evangelical Lutheran Church in Hickory, North Carolina, helping us this morning with Amos 1 verses 3 through 5. Pastor Mize, thank you so much for your time today.
1: Absolutely, I enjoyed it.
0: I'm your host here on Sharper Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.